that's happening, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, we want to get one to you. Just slip up your hand and our volunteers will bring you a Bible to look along with us this morning. And we'll be in the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Okay? Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. There are several New Testament passages I want to look at this morning. Um, And to get there, to get to Luke chapter 12, I need to set the stage just a bit. And so we'll get to Luke 12. But let me begin with a question that I think will set the stage for our time in the Word this morning. Here's the question. Why is Easter supposed to be the happiest day of the year in Christ's church? Happiest day. Billions have gathered around the globe. We're on the tail end of Easter being here in the West. But they say it's supposed to be the happiest day of the year in Christ's church. Said another way, why is Easter service supposed to be the most joyful service all year long on the Christian calendar? I mean, look at you. Some of you in your pastels this morning. It's about as bright as I get. I saved this shirt to wear it for Easter, right? You come in. We've got flowers, we're having an Easter egg hunt, there's baptisms, right? It's supposed to be the happiest service of the year. Let me ask it this way, and this question will be our guiding question for our time in the Word this morning, okay? Here it is. What about Christ's resurrection from the dead is supposed to make you so happy? I'll say it again. What about Christ's resurrection from the dead is supposed to make you so happy this morning. You ever ask that? This poor, no-name man from a tiny Judean village in the first century who was assassinated by the Roman state in roughly 33 AD via crucifixion, like hundreds of other criminals would have been assassinated that year on a cross under Caesar. If you know your history, Jesus, or, or the Gospels, Jesus was given a simple burial, no funeral. If he was given a funeral, no one probably would have attended except for his mother and his siblings. He died, never have traveling more than 100 miles from where he was born. No university education, no books written, no position of power, no royalty, no government office, no statues erected in Jesus' honor. He dies a criminal of the state. He's executed. You know, we get those headlines. Someone's on death row. And right before they're executed, there's all this protest and news about it. This is Jesus. He's executed by the state. And when he died, most scholars estimate he had only but a a hundred followers to his name at best. And yet, today, there's almost no corner of the globe you could go this morning where people don't know this man's name. Jesus, the Son of God. Time Magazine named him the most popular or the most famous person that ever lived. His scriptures are the best-selling book in the world with no close second. And his faith movement has spent, if you know, just basic history. His faith movement has spent the last two millennia 
sweeping the globe unlike any other movement the world has ever known. Unprecedented success in the billions of converts. All from that criminal man that they killed. That peasant carpenter from Nazareth. What makes Jesus so different than all the others of history? What's so special about him? Answer. Well, nothing if he would have stayed dead. Right? Nothing if he would have done what everyone else that's ever lived has done, stayed in the ground. This man's resurrection from the dead has caused billions of people to be so happy and hopeful in him. And I want to take an Easter Sunday to simply ask, why? Is it simply because rising from the dead is such an unprecedented miracle? A man would come back from death? Well, that's a really big deal. And that is a massive miracle. But can I say this? So what? It's an amazing miracle for that guy. But why is everyone else so happy about it? That can't simply be the reason billions are joyful today on Easter. There must be something that his resurrection did for humanity. There must be some universal problem that Jesus' rising from the dead solved for all people. Otherwise, why have billions found such life in this one man's obscure name and resurrection from the dead? He's a peasant from Nazareth that was killed by the state. What exactly did Christ solve then for humanity? Are you with me? There are two things. Again, this will take us into Luke chapter 12. There are two things that mankind has universally feared most. Two things. I don't care what country you go to, what time period, what language they speak, or what beliefs they hold. All of mankind, since the beginning of time, has feared these two things. Their future and their death. Your future, anything could happen. Any tragedy might strike, could be cancer, could be the death of a child, could be this, that, or the other, financial collapse. We could list the things. Some of you have suffered them. Everyone, man, woman, and child, has in some sense, whether conscious or subconscious, feared their future and certainly feared their death. You don't know when it'll all be taken from you, right? Dead. Screen goes black. Game over. No, no coming back. And if for some reason this morning you're struggling to believe me that those are the two things humanity has feared most, I can just start naming off all the uncertain things that might happen to you in the weeks to come and I can really get the angst in this room to rise through the roof, could I not? It's what we fear. It's what it means to be human. We fear our future and we fear our death. Today, this Easter, in the Word, I want to show you that Christ's resurrection solved and answered both those perennial fears 
in such a tremendous way that billions of people have joyfully believed in him. Unlike any other figure of history. That he has promised these things to mankind and Jesus has actually delivered on him. And that is why he has had such a massive worldwide following. Let me show you. Let's first talk about fear of the future. We'll find that right here in Luke chapter 12. This is the parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12. Look for it. Fear of the future. We'll pick up in verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. It says, And Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is this man doing here, this rich man? Well, he's trying to beat fate and totally secure his future, is he not? He's trying to lock it down from anything bad happening. Look at verses 17 and 18. He thinks to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. It says he's going to tear down his barns, build bigger ones, put all of the grain in there, right? And store it up for all of the years to come. What is he after? He's saying, make more and more money so I can immunize myself from any crisis or tragedy in the years to come. What is he doing? He's putting all of his future faith in what he owns, not in who owns him. What what does it say in verse 19? He says he speaks to his soul. He says, soul, you have Ample goods laid up for many years. He's fearing the future. He says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You ever seen anyone do that? I'm not talking about normal investments in your retirement, all those things. But a faith in money. That it can be like God and sovereignly keep away all tragedy, suffering, and loss. Lock it down. Build bigger barns. Then I'll be fine. Then I can relax. Otherwise, this fear is just eating at me about the future. You ever ever seen anyone do that? Do you do that? Do I do that? That's the fear of the future. Let me give you an example in the Gospels when it comes to the fear of death. All right? So think of it this way. What's the opposite of final death? It's what the New Testament calls eternal life. That hope that this isn't all there is. Life in the dirt when we die. It's this desire for immortality. And that runs deep throughout our human psyche and our human history. We want to live forever. We don't want to die. We want to be with our loved ones. The fear of death is the fear beneath all fears. It drives us into all kinds of stupid living. Watch this particular man's longing for it. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Just a few chapters deeper into this gospel. Luke chapter 18, picking up in verse 8. Let's look at the first verse. It's going to give a description, a little biography of who this particular man is. So Luke chapter 18, verse 18 reads this. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now stop there. Other gospels tell you a little more about this man's background. They call him a young ruler, so he's a young man. He's already rich and secure in life as a young man. And it says that he's a ruler. So he has a very high status in society. Young, rich, secure, and he's a ruler. Seems to be what everyone would like to have, does it not? He has all of his needs. He has a good bit of security in life. Here's my question. Remember, he's young. If he has all of that, then why does this young man have this ache inside where he can't stop thinking about his future death? Did you see the question? He goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? I know I'm going to die. I fear about it. It keeps me up at night. I know I have all that I need. I'm provided for in this life. But what about the next? What must I do, he says, to inherit eternal life? He can't stop thinking about it. Jesus goes on. Verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is a good except God alone. He says, you know the commandments. He takes them back to the Old Testament. Do not commit adultery. Murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And the young man said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Verse 23 says this, but when the man heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This man is no different than us. We all want some sense of security, don't we? Some idea that we can hold off that day as long as possible for ourselves and for the ones that we love. This was certainly true in Jesus' day. It's not just unique to our time. There was this very popular movement in Jesus' day. It was a a school philosophy called Stoicism. Okay, Do you know about the Stoics? Anyone know about the Stoics? All you intelligent people out there, right? Their thought, the Stoics, still has a powerful grip on today's thinking, actually. And you might ask why. Well, because they talked a lot about this problem of fearing the future and fearing death. There's this quote from Seneca. He was a Roman Stoic philosopher. He was born just one year after Jesus. So he's a year younger than Jesus our Lord. And there's this quote from him, and you're going to see, I'll I'll read two of them. He's talking all about fear of the future, right? Right? We bring it to the screen. It reads this. For the only safe harbor in this life's tossing troubled sea is to refuse to be bothered about what the future will bring and to stand ready and confident, squaring the breast to take without sulking or flinching whatever fortune hurls at us. Another one. Look for this fear of the future, trying to solve it. Seneca says, True happiness is to enjoy the present without anxious dependence upon the future. Not to amuse ourselves with either hopes 
or fears, but to rest satisfied. For he that is wants nothing. I don't know about you, but I've never gone a day feeling like that. He that is wants nothing. It's an idealistic attempt to be so detached from your real life, when you really live, that you try and avoid all future fear and pain. The only problem is, it doesn't work. You try and go a day without thinking about the future. Whether it's joyful or fearful. And you know what? We're still grasping for that same security in all the wrong places today in America. Right? We see it everywhere. Can I just name a few for you? In the uh, American, let's start here. In the American self-care movement. You've heard me talk about this. The promise is that you can purchase the right amount of essential oils, life coaches, Instagram likes, and me time to feel so good about now that you don't have to worry about later. Right? You're allowed to say amen to that. (laughs) Or in the American political movement. The promise is that you can take all your future worries and place them in the hands of this one party or this one candidate and they will secure your best future free of any losses. What is that? Grasping for security. Somebody tell me it's going to be all right. Or in the environmental movement. The promise is that we can do all of these things with renewable energies and new inventions that we can save the planet or leave it all together. Go to Mars or somewhere they're building a galaxy. One more. Or in the tech movement. The promise is that we can just build such an advanced AI and civilization that if you just put this nanochip inside your brain... All the problems of our past will go away into this bright new future. Control, control, control. Make us feel more and more secure about our future. Someone take care of this gnawing fear of what might happen and of death. You saw this certainly during the pandemic, did you not? Now, I'm not going to get on that soapbox, although I'd love to. Come back next Sunday. I'll probably talk about that. You saw crazy grasping for security. And I get it. It was a scary time. But wow, the world went nuts. We can control it all, right? We can play God, right? And you see the scriptures from one end to the other, the entire canon. There's example after example that totally pulls the rug out from that kind of thinking. James, the brother of Jesus, says it best in his letter. I want to read it to you. It's James chapter 4. He says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while. And then vanishes away. Instead you ought to say. If the Lord wills. We will live. And also do this or that. You see as humans. 
We want guarantee. We want certainty, right? You see this impulse since ancient times. There's always been a strong man. That's what they call it. A strong man trying to unsuccessfully control and secure the future for everyone else. The Roman Empire in history is the most famous for doing this. They took over and tried to control so much of the world. Let me show you. If we could bring that map to the screen. This is all of the land one single country, one single government owned. Can you imagine some nation trying to do that today? All of the Mediterranean world, Europe, North Africa, into the Middle East and beyond. The Romans controlled a strong man. We'll secure and own all of this for the future, right? See, what happened is with all of this war and killing and pillaging, the Roman emperors had to justify to their people why there was such a brutal conquest they were engaged in. Practically, the emperors had to give frightened mothers good reason as to why their boys were being shipped off to faraway lands for war. And they answered it with two words. They coined a phrase, and it goes like this. Pax Romana. Pax Romana. If we could bring that next slide to the screen. Pax Romana was this two-word phrase that they coined that explained it all. This phrase means Roman peace. Peace is the operative word. Roman peace. It was coined by the Emperor Caesar Augustus right around when Jesus was born in 4 AD. The core idea behind Pax Romana is that the world is in such a state of chaos and conflict that someone has to step in and control it all to bring about peace. And guess who that was? Rome. We'll own it all and we'll bring about peace. We'll control it. This idea of Pax Romana was so sweeping in its dominance around the Mediterranean world and beyond that it even affected, get this, how our Lord Jesus was born. Did you know that? It even determined where and how Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born. That's how sweeping Pax Romana was. Let me show it to you. Turn back in Luke's Gospel to chapter 2. Romana has made all its way all the way down south into Israel. They're an occupied land with all kinds of Roman soldiers, governor, Pontius Pilate, and beyond. And they dictate how the citizens of that land, Mary and Joseph, how they lived. Look for it. Chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is a census. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
So he's forcing everyone to go back to their birthplace. doesn't matter where they live. And they're not going to pay for the travel costs. you got to go. Talk about dominance. Verse 4, And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Pax Romana, so sweeping, making everyone go back to their birthplace. The travel was heightened. There was no room in any of the hotels or hostels. Jesus' family gets there late. They have nowhere to stay. They have to give birth to the Savior of the world out in really, it's a cave. It's, a, it's, it's like a cave where shepherds would be with cattle and, and sheep. You see, the Romans said, we will bring universal order. We will make the future safe again. We will secure peace for everyone. No more fear. But we know how that went. It was peace through victory. It was peace through violence. It was peace through war. There's a great scholar today named Peter Bolt. He has this to say about Pax Romana and really how it has affected the life here in the Gospels. It reads this. The imperial rhetoric proclaimed that Augustus had brought life to a world teetering on the brink of destruction. He had brought salvation. The Pax Romana must now be maintained at all costs For this was the future of the world. This was the security that would ensure that there was no more need for anxiety. People wanted to believe so badly that a strong man could bring peace that they, watch this, they even started to call Caesar Augustus the savior of the world. That was his title. And even further than that, they wanted to believe so bad in Caesar Augustus that they divinized him and they gave him the title son of God. Did you catch that? Does that sound familiar? Savior of the world and son of God. That's Jesus language. That's Messiah language. Oh no. That's what they called Caesar Augustus, the emperor in power when Jesus was born. Savior and son of God. It was even on their currency. But do you know what happened in history? This Caesar of peace, supposed peace, ends up killing the very prince of peace on the cross. This supposed savior of the world, Caesar, is the one whose soldiers kill the true savior of the world, Jesus. How about that for history? Pax Romana killed the true son of God. And watch how history has played out since then. The world no longer calls Caesar Augustus the son of God. That's what they call Jesus. The peasant criminal from nowhere that they executed on the cross at Golgotha. What did the Roman soldiers say when they saw Jesus die in Mark chapter 15 verse 39? It reads this, and when the centurion, that's the soldier, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, 
truly, this man was the Son of God. So why today do we use that title for Jesus of Nazareth and not for Caesar of Rome? What makes Jesus more the Son of God than Caesar Augustus? Did you see the map of all the land he owned? The armies he commanded? The statues erected in his name? The titles that he held? Logical answer. Because when Augustus died, he stayed dead. But not Jesus. Get this. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what vindicated his claim that he truly is the Son of God. No one else comes back from death. The divine Son sent from heaven by the Almighty to our world to save it. And if that's true, now go with me on this logic. If that's true, then it means our world is not left up to random chance or blind fate. If that's true, then it means our world is not without a divine plan and a set future. If that's true, it means that our world is not left all on its own with no one to guide and govern it. Watch this. If Christ died and rose from the grave, it means our world is in the hands of the Lord. Do you see that? That's what it means. The future is no longer in the hands of an empty, godless universe, this atheist universe. But if Christ died and rose, it means this world is in the hands of the Lord. We have not need for fear. The future is no longer in the hands of corrupt and dying kings and politicians. No strong man, I don't care how good you think he is. But it's in the hands of the Lord who died and rose. There's a marker in history that says God cares. He visited our world and died and rose on its behalf. This means the future is no longer in the hands of false gods and promises or tech and all the rest. But it's in the hands of the Lord who died and rose. Our world is now forever different. Because of what happened at the cross and tomb of Jesus Christ. It's the most important and defining event in our history. It means that there is a personal God ruling the course of our world. That loves and cares enough for us. And our collective future as a humanity. That he would visit us as one of us. That's why we believe that God became human. Born of the Virgin Mary. And that he would suffer and die and rise on humanity's behalf. This is a wild God that we believe in. And this is the truth that changed the world. This is the gospel. What is one of Jesus' closest disciples, John the Apostle? What does he say about it? Sums it up so well, it's on the screen, 1 John 4. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed among us. That God sent his only son into the world. That means there's a God. And his son is Jesus. So that we might live through him. It says in this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. 
You see, the cross and the resurrection is the great paradigm shift for us all. This is what finally gave people real hope in the future and real happiness in the present. It means there is a personal God who wants to know you and that you can in turn have a personal relationship with that God through Christ. And come what may in your life, life or death, tragedy or success, Christ will care for you and carry you home to God both now and forever. Talk about real security and peace. Talk about genuine happiness. Let me wake you up this morning. You're going to die. And I'm sorry. I don't care how many oils you take or how much tech or money you have. You can't make the passageway from this life to the next. I don't know the martyr train to get on. Do you? I don't know the airplane to take. Do you? Only the God who is love. And we know that because Jesus has come, has the power to take you from this life to the next, much less transform your life from an aching fear into real joy and peace. This is the truth that changed the world. Forget the philosophers, forget Pax Romana, forget the strong man, forget the religions and gods. There was nothing like it to hit the ancient world. This is why Christianity exploded across the globe. This is why billions then and today have believed in this one man of history. Let me end by telling you what Jesus said to those that believed in him then and what he says to those who believe in him now. It's one thing you find in the Gospel of John. If you hear anything, hear this. Jesus says to them, he's talking about heaven, about where he will take them when they die. Anyone that believes in him. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus says. In my Father's house, he's talking about the kingdom of God, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So I'll carry you home to God. And you know the way to where I'm going, he said to his disciples. Now Thomas said to him, Lord... We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered him and he said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we end with this. Do you want to know the way forward? Do you want to know the real truth? Do you want eternal life in God's kingdom now? And when you die, Christ simply says in that first verse, believe in me. That is all. And as billions of souls across the globe already have, he is why believers are so happy and so hopeful today. This is why Julia is getting baptized today. She has, by God's grace, believed in this one man's words, the one who rose from the dead. And Christ has brought her to God. You ask her. Christ has changed her life as he's changed mine. Our life is now 
in his hands. And so I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Do you want your life in God's hands? Believing and following Jesus is the way. He is the one God sent to our world. There is no other one coming. He is the one that the Almighty sent. And so bow down to Christ today. Give Him worship and glory today. That He came to save us. Repent from leading your own life and believe in Him to follow Him into the way He wants you to live. And Christ will save you into His kingdom of love right now and forever. Amen? Amen. For those, let me invite Will. You guys can come. Let me just say this. For those that don't walk with Christ and you're here this morning, maybe with friends or family, I encourage you, talk to someone today more about Jesus. On the ride home, at lunch, send a text to that old friend you knew in high school that really did believe these things or that roommate in college. Or come speak with me after the service. For those of us in this room who do walk with Christ imperfectly, put your life back in His hands today. Put your life back in His hands this Easter. I don't know what the start of 2023 has been for you, but today the whole world is stopping and focusing on this one man and His death and His resurrection. Put your life back in His hands. You're not in control. You can't create the future. Only God does. You can't make the things you want to happen happen. You can't stop the things you don't want to happen. Stop from coming true. Put your life in the hands of Christ who sits over the entire cosmos and rules it, not with violence, but with love.